0: Last Sunday was a very, very special Sunday for our church family at all of our campuses as we celebrated baptism and people made public professions of faith. And so we wanted to take the opportunity to begin this service, to begin just before we get into our time in the word, to just reflect and recap on what the Lord did at all three of our campuses, to be reminded that although we are in one particular room, we are really one church in multiple locations. And to see how God worked at all of our sites uh, last week was really, really, really a joy. And he does that each and every week through the preaching of the word, through the gospel as it's preached. And so we're really, really excited to be part of a church that God is doing so many wonderful things in, uh, even through difficult, difficult times. And we're really glad that we're part of the same church family as you. Turn in your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 43. And since God's written word comes to us with the same authority as God's spoken word, would you please stand if you're physically able in honor of his word and his voice, as I read along the gospel of Luke from chapter 9, verses 43 to the end of the chapter. This is what the word of God says. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. At the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went ahead and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Eighteen people. Eighteen people made a public profession of faith, saving faith in Christ last weekend at all three of our campuses, one of which was very special to me was my son, Jonathan. I've never gotten to baptize one of my own children before. In our day and age, there's this idea that becoming a Christian is a thing you decide to do at a certain moment or maybe in an instant, uh, oftentimes emotional time of your life. But if you read through the New Testament, you'll notice that Jesus never, not rarely, not seldomly, listen to me, never tried to move people emotionally into a crisis of decision in which they would accept him. Ever. Read through the New Testament and count them all. It won't take long. Zero. He never does that. There's literally no record in the Bible of Jesus or the apostles persuading someone to make an impulsive decision for Jesus or to pray a prayer to be saved. None of that. When Christ invited someone to follow him, it was never out of fear or guilt or desire to upgrade one's life or desire to have an emotional experience. But our day and age isn't the first time people were confused as to what it meant to follow Christ. And we just read that. And I want to go through that with you once again. So pick it up in chapter nine and verse 43. When Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Like, hey, listen up. Let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But the very next verse says that they did not understand this saying they did not understand the real reason jesus had come to live and to die on the cross they didn't understand that they understood that he was the savior but probably didn't understand exactly what that meant and so when he's saying these things i'm about to be delivered up like that's why we're going to jerusalem verse 45 says they did not understand this saying and there's a reason do you know why it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it god in his Sovereign wisdom had concealed this saying from them because he knew how they would respond. He knew how they would react. And so Jesus was speaking truth. But God hadn't opened their eyes to these details yet. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. But at the same time, at the end of verse 45, they were afraid to ask him about this saying. They couldn't understand it, and that's because it was concealed from them. Pick it up in verse 46. If you look at verse 46, they're starting to argue among themselves about who is the greatest. This is is just... Proof positive that they did not understand what Jesus was talking about. Like, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they're like, I don't really know what that means. I'm not sure what that means. Hey, I think I'm kind of a big deal. I don't know how to say that. You're not a big deal. I'm kind of a big deal. And people are talking about who among them is the greatest. And Jesus perceives their hearts, knows their hearts, pulls a child close to him. The most unimportant member of Jewish society was a child. Pulls a child close to him. And says what he says in verse 48. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And so in a sense, yes, that shows Jesus' love for children. But that's not really, we're kind of missing the point if we just say that's what that is. That's actually Jesus saying, the least among you. Because in Jewish society, a child would have had no social standing whatsoever. The least among you is who you should be going after. The least among you is whom you should be receiving. You guys are arguing over who's the greatest? Come here, give me that kid. Look, whoever receives this child, that person's fit to be for the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives someone right here, this child, someone like this, they'd be looking and saying... Why are you holding a kid? Like of all the people, you think you'd pull over a, a disciple. You think you'd pull over a, uh, someone who has a medical infirmity. He's about to heal. Something miraculous. Something, some, some like climactic experience is going to happen. No, he grabs a child and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Meaning stop worrying about who's the greatest. Worry about who's the least. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And so John then in verse 49 is like, ooh, Uh, Master? He's kind of remembering how they treated a man who was casting out demons in the power of the name of Jesus, but wasn't one of the 12. And so in verse 49, it says they tried to stop him. He was like, okay, so we're supposed to receive even kids who are the least among us, and we should probably let you know that there was a guy doing a lot of good in your name, but he wasn't with us. And so we might have yelled at him. told him to to stop. And so Jesus responds, and he says, don't stop him. The The one who's not against you is for you. Like, I'm going to be working through multiple people. It's not just going to be around this 12. No, don't stop him. Don't do that. And in verse 51, they're heading to Jerusalem. Jesus sends messengers ahead of him to make arrangements for a place to stay in a Samaritan village. The people rejected him. And James and John see this, and they're like, yeah, let's bring it. Let's do it. They're kind of like, yeah, you know, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Do you ready, ready? want to do it? Come on. Yeah, fire, Beavis. Come on. Let's do fire. We'll have fire come down from heaven. We'll get them. But he turned, and look at verse 55. He turned and what? Rebuked them. Okay, so he didn't just say, nah, don't do that. Let's just, it's not worth your time. He was like, you're dead wrong. What, would he fire from what? Elijah much? What, what are you calling down fire from heaven? No. We don't do that. We're going to move on. We're going to move on and just stay in another place. It's not about about getting victory in the here and now with our enemies. We're just going to move on. Verse 56, they went on to another village. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. That's what we see there. This message was concealed from them, and they simply didn't get it. And it's not because they were idiots. It's because they were human. And, friends, if they didn't get it, you might not get it. I might not get it. And that brings us to where we're going to focus today the final six verses of this chapter. Six verses, three people, all expressing an interest in following him, but Jesus discerns something about each of them and responds to them in kind, which brings us to our first point today. Point number one You need to be aware of the good things that keep you from being a true disciple of Jesus. The good things. If you read through this text, verses 57 and following, which we're going to do again, you'll see Jesus never rebukes them for what they're wanting to do. None of them said that they wanted to do something evil in and of themselves. None of them said, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me plunder a village. Or I'll follow you, but first let me steal something. Or first let me murder someone. Or first let me beat up kittens just for fun. Or first let me start a lucrative drug trade. They're not wanting to do things that are evil in and of themselves. First let me steal Halloween candy from kids and laugh maniacally as I run away. They're not wanting to do evil things. But see, that's the thing. That's why this passage of Scripture is so important for us to understand. Because I don't think evil things stand in our way as much as the good things that become God things. If you look at your life, it's probably not. I mean, it might be. I'm not saying we don't have the propensity of it. We're certainly totally depraved. Our sinful nature is affecting every part of our lives in some way, shape, or form. We're not as bad as we can be, but sin can affect every area of our lives. And we know that. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, verse 23. We know that our hearts are desperately and deceitfully wicked and can't be known by us except the only one who can know us is God, Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. I mean, we we know these things. But see, what I'm saying is here, Jesus calls to our attention that it's not necessarily the bad, awful, evil things, the evil things that you can see coming a mile away and you're going to steer clear of them. It's the good things that become God things that will stand in our way of true discipleship. Here's the thing, though. I think the three things addressed here are the most common or among the most common good things that stand in the way of people being true, genuine followers of Jesus, true, genuine disciples. I don't think they're just some random things that happen to land in your Bible. Could have been any one of these things, and this is just the things that they happen to come across I think they're intentionally placed there because perhaps more than anything else, these three serve as hindrances to discipleship, hindrances to making disciples who make disciples because they hold us back. They stop us from being the people that God would want us to be as followers of Jesus. And we do well to beware lest we think our decision to follow Christ doesn't need to impact the decisions we make each and every day. So in your outline, I have three good things that can hinder discipleship. I shouldn't say I have, God has three good things that can hinder discipleship. They come straight out of the passage from verses 57 to the end of the chapter. So let's pick it up in Luke chapter nine, uh, beginning in verse 57. (coughs) Excuse me. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Okay. So let's just stop there. He's not asking Jesus for a favor. There doesn't seem to be any ill will in this man. In fact, he specifically says he'll follow Jesus for how long? To where? Wherever he goes. It seems like he's expressing a desire to be with Jesus, not just for the moment, but for the long haul. Like, I want to change my life in such a way that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually go with you, like, wherever you're going. I don't even know where you're going, bro. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you where you're going. Do you know where I'm going? Immaterial. If you're going there, that's where I want to be. That's what it sounds like. Now, Luke doesn't mention it, but in Matthew's account of this event, it says that this man was actually a scribe. And so that takes it up a notch, right? It's a scribe looking at Jesus saying, I want to go with you wherever you'd go. We know that scribes and Pharisees are perhaps the ones who hated Jesus more than anyone, always seeking to literally destroy him. They weren't just annoyed by him. They wanted him to die. But this guy, this scribe is in a sense defecting from his position among the Jewish elite and telling Jesus he'll follow him wherever he goes. But Jesus discerns something about this man. He discerns something about this man because Jesus is not one to like turn down people who want to follow him, not at all. Everyone who sincerely wants to follow Jesus, Jesus welcomes with open arms. And so the fact that Jesus has something other than a positive response to this man shows that something is up. He discerns something about him and he discerns his desire for comfort and lets him know that following Jesus is not a decision to make if comfort is of utmost importance to you. That's why he says what he says in verse 58. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Three things that will hinder you from true discipleship. The first of which is the comforts of home. Jesus must be more important to you than that which is comfortable. He must be more important to you than the home that you love so much. Now, listen to me. I'm not saying that becoming a follower of Christ means you have to sell your house. I'm not saying that because of a follower of Christ, you have to get rid of the comfortable couch that's in your living room and get something that's really uncomfortable to like prove that you're really like on fire for Jesus. Not at all. But I'm saying that Jesus needs to be more important to you than other things that are important to you, one of which is the comforts of home. I mean, we could read throughout the New Testament, and I put some examples in your outline. The people of Jesus' hometown tried to kill him. He tried to kill him. There's a certain comfort that exists when you go back to where you spent your childhood years, right? Like I can just imagine me like going back to, you know, New York City, the neighborhood. My mom still lives in the same apartment that I lived in since I was three. And so it's like I can go back. I have lots of memories there. And all of a sudden I'm like in the elevator and people are trying to kill me. That would be rather disturbing. Jesus is... Friends, the people who knew him, the people of his hometown tried to kill him. We read about that in Luke chapter 4 and verse 29. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off of a cliff. This is real, bro. This is not like, I feel like they're kind of against, I don't know, he looked at me weird. They tried to throw him off a cliff. That was their plan. This is real life. This is not a drill. Even after Jesus miraculously blessed people, he was still driven away. We looked at that in Luke chapter 8 and verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. That's after Jesus healed the demoniac, and the demons came out and ran into the pigs, and the pigs ran down the hill and drowned in the water. They're like, can you please go soon? That was super scary. We don't want you here with us. Are they grateful? The kind of, not If you could go, we'd be grateful. We'd love that. If you could just find the nearest exit, keeping in mind it may be behind you. Jesus didn't have a ton of friends. Jesus didn't have a ton of people who wanted to make him feel comfortable. And Jesus was regularly rejected by people. We read that earlier in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 and following. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him. This is not uncommon. Jesus is not shocked. The disciples are shocked. Fire, fire. No, just just move on. We'll go to another village. Jesus discerned that self-denial was a major issue for the man who said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And so he responds to him, letting him know that foxes that Jesus created, by the way, had holes to sleep in. To call their own. The birds of the air that Jesus created, by the way, had nests to call their own, but following Jesus had to be more important than the comforts this man was used to and loved. And Jesus discerns he wasn't prepared to deny himself, to take up his cross daily, as we read about earlier in Luke chapter 9, in order to follow him. And so, even when this man says, I'll follow you wherever, wherever you go, he's like, Foxes have holes, man, birds have nests. This guy, doesn't have a friend in the world. This guy doesn't have a place to lay his head. I don't know where I'm going to be sleeping. I don't go back to the, my comfortable home each and every day. Is thinking, okay, I did a good day's work. A call to discipleship of following Jesus is not going to be one that is going to increase your level of comfort or your ease in this life. At best, it's net zero. Most likely, in some way, shape, or form, comfort and enjoyment in this life will take a hit because of being a true follower of Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, this is, you got to know this, like count, count the cost. This is what it's going to be. Three good things that can hinder discipleship. Uh, Jesus must be more important to you than the comforts of home. But the second one is this, Jesus must be more important to you than the security of money. See, I don't see money in the passage. Well, Let's look, take a look at the next guy. Luke 9 and verse 59. This is actually a little different because who starts this conversation? Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. So here's Jesus discerning. So we shouldn't be amazed, right? Because he's God. Like he created the world. Like the fact that he can discern what someone else is thinking is really not that big of a deal. But discerns what this, what's going to happen in this man. He actually starts a conversation with him and says, hey, you follow me. But the man said this, "Lord, let me first go and bury my father." Can we just all agree this this sounds like a reasonable request? Right? Like this sounds pretty reasonable. The man is a son just wants to just wants to bury his father. Right? Sounds reasonable, assuming he's dead. I mean, and it sounds horrible if it's not, but In fact, it sounds more than reasonable. It actually sounds biblical. When Abraham died, his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him, Genesis 25 and verse 9. When Isaac died, his sons, Jacob and Esau, buried him, Genesis 35 and verse 29. When Jacob died, Joseph knew it was his responsibility to bury his father, so he asked Pharaoh for permission to do so, as he had sworn to his father. And he did, Genesis 50 and verse 13. It was a son's duty to bury his father. There's nothing wrong with what this man wants to do, except for one thing that I actually think we can assume is true that's not mentioned in the text. I think it's true nonetheless. And we kind of laughed at it, but I actually think that's actually the case. I don't think this guy's father was dead yet. Now, I don't think he wants to bury a live man. But here's why I think this. I don't think His father was dead yet because Jews didn't embalm bodies. So it was Jewish custom to bury people immediately after death. So you can figure it out as you read through the Gospel of John. Lazarus was buried the same day he died. Uh, In Acts, what is it, chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they drop dead and the people carry them out to bury them, like immediately. Both were struck dead and carried away to be buried immediately. If this man's father was dead, he wouldn't have been available to talk to Jesus. He wouldn't have been there. If this man's father was about to die, he would have been at his father's side, tending to his needs and preparing for his burial. This man wouldn't have been talking to Jesus. This man's father's death neither happened nor was about to happen, but I think what this man was saying is that he wanted to wait until his father died so he could receive the inheritance that was coming to him, which is actually still not terribly unreasonable. Like, if that's the case, that's also not unreasonable. Like We shouldn't picture that he's sitting here like, you know, like, ha ha. I'll wait till my he's just like, yeah, I got I got a lot coming to me from from my dad. So I'm going to wait till he dies, take that inheritance, and then I'll I'll follow you. This is. As soon as I get what's coming to me. But let's be reasonable. I'll follow you, but let's be reasonable. I have an inheritance. I need the inheritance. Like this is what we do. This is how we roll. I can be a better I can be a better follower if I have the inheritance. I can commit more to the ministry if I have the inheritance. And so let me get that and I'll catch you on the flip side. So I'll follow you, but let me first just get what my dad has coming to me. And that's probably why Jesus said to him, you know what? Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Ah, let it go, bro. And so what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean let the physically dead bury the physically dead. That's a whole lot of hurry up and wait, right? Like that's not going to happen. He's like, let, let the spiritually dead take care of the matters of this world. It's just money. It's just an inheritance. We've got work to do, man. We've got to proclaim the kingdom of God. So let's go. Let's just come. Like let, They'll take care of it. Someone else will get the money. Someone else will take the inheritance. Jesus discerning. Jesus, of course, is not telling him, go against what you need to do as a son. So Jesus wouldn't be telling him to do that. I think Jesus knows what's really going on in his heart, and it's that you're not totally, you're at best interested in following me, but not ready to give it all up and follow me because you still are relying on an earthly Not evil, just an earthly thing that God has provided to you through your Father. But if you were really taken by me, you would follow me, like, without a doubt. Those with spiritual life prioritize things differently than those who are spiritually dead. True disciples of Jesus are willing to leave everything in order to follow Jesus. Matthew 19 and verse 27, Peter said, see, we have left, what, everything, and followed you. Luke 5, verse 11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Later on in the same chapter, verse 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. That's why Jesus says things like he does in Luke 17, verse 33. We haven't gotten there yet, but it's, he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will, what, lose it, Whoever loses his life will keep it. We read that and we feel like that makes zero sense. Listen to me. It really does make zero sense. You're not crazy. But that's Jesus just taking our value system and saying, listen, we need a complete turnaround, a complete change of values. You have to understand that if you seek to to keep your life, you're actually going to lose it. If you're willing to give it up, you're actually going to gain way more than you could have ever kept. And that's where some people look at him and say, He's this guy's crazy. And then other people look at him and go, Yes, yes. I get it. He's worth it. I get it. He's worthy. I get it. I can give it all up because I will gain in Christ anything infinitely more than I would ever lose in what I would give up in this world. Pick it up in Luke chapter nine and verse sixty one. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say well to those at my home. This isn't let me stay home. This isn't, I can kind of, I don't think he was going to let like go on a quick fundraising trip. Like, I don't, I don't see any, he's like, I, I, I just want to say goodbye. I, I, I just want to say farewell. That's all. I'm likely never going to see these people again. I would just like to say goodbye, right? Can't text them, selfie with Jesus. We can't do that. I need to go and say goodbye. But Jesus, once again, discerns something about this man. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say, thou shall not bid a loved one farewell. So there has to be something he discerns about this man. It's not what he wants to do is a good thing. But Jesus discerned that this man was willing to, that the first man was unwilling to deny himself comfort, that the second man was unwilling to deny himself the security that comes with money. And this guy just wanted to say goodbye. But Jesus discerned something. It's not just that he wants to hug his father. It's not just that he wants to kiss his mother on the cheek as she cries on his shoulder. It's not just that he wanted to hug his siblings or tickle or noogie his nephews and nieces. There's something more. And that is this. Jesus must be more important to you than the people you love. He must be more important to you than the people you love. Family ties can be some strong, strong, strong ties. They can be strong for better or for worse. And Jesus says some pretty radical things about Family, right? Back in Luke, uh, just a chapter ago, back in Luke chapter eight, verses 20 and following, Jesus is amidst a crowd and people tell him that his mother and siblings are outside and want to see him. Jesus' response is pretty bizarre. In fact, Luke doesn't record it, but Matthew says that he responds to the person. person's like, hey, your mom and your, siblings, your family's outside. They want to see you. And he goes, who are my mother and my siblings? That guy's probably like, I feel like he knows that. (laughs) You know that, bro, right? Tell tell me you know that. But he goes on to say, everyone who does my will is my family. He's not kicking his family aside, but he's raising others to the level of family. Family. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And so for people with the whole blood is thicker than water thing, they're going to be like, yeah, I mean, I know we have, like, we're a church family. Like, we're a church family, but this is my, it's my blood relatives. This is my, they're going to put their personal family above the family of God. When Jesus is like, anyone who does my will, they are my family. They're equal. Luke 14 and verse 26, again, we haven't gotten there yet, but he says, "If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." And so you look at Luke 14 and verse 26, which again, we haven't gotten to yet, that's not a prerequisite. Right, We don't say, like, when we're baptizing people, like, do you put all your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation? Yes. All right, which of your family do you hate the most? Go. But he's just saying, if it comes down to choosing me or your family, it needs to be me. It needs to be me. In fact, it needs to be a no-brainer that it's me. And so if you're not, I'm not telling you to do this, but you need to be willing to do this, it needs to be Jesus before all. And that's why Jesus looks at that third individual in verse 62 and says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I know you'll be surprised to know I did not do much plowing of fields in Queens. And so from what I'm told and from what I read is especially in Jesus' day, long before any automation, plowing a field was something that took your entire focus. You could not multitask and plow a field. You could not plow a field and look around and observe things that God is doing around you because you had to make sure that you were plowing in straight lines and also had to make sure that you weren't plowing over something, a rock or what have you, that's going to literally demolish your plow because then your livelihood is kaputs. And so no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. No earthly relationship can be prioritized over a true disciple's relationship with Jesus. Which brings us to our final point. So we've looked at we've we've looked at the fact that we need to be aware of the good things that could become god things, right? We need to be aware of these good things. None of these things, having a comfortable home or a comfortable life, that in and of itself is not is not bad. Everybody chose to wear what they're wearing today for a reason. Comfort somehow entered into that equation. Everybody chose the furniture that is in their home for a reason or where you live for a reason even if it's you couldn't live anywhere else there's still something about your life that you chose based on comfort and it's not a sin but comfort is a good thing that can't become a god thing otherwise it will stand in the way of you being a true disciple and jesus needs to be more important to you than comfort uh, furthermore jesus needs to be more important to you than the security of money Money's not a bad thing it's a great thing But if that security is getting in the way of your relationship with God, there's going to be a problem with discipleship. And Jesus needs to be more important to you than the relationships that we have on a human level. We talk a lot about the importance of relationships. We say we can't live this life alone. We're supposed to live it in community. That's why we have community groups. We don't want Sunday morning to be the only, your idea of fellowship to be seeing the person's, like the back of their head in front of you as you sit in a row. Relationships are important. These are good things. Do you see that? These are all, none of these are bad things. These are good things. But verse 62, the final verse of that chapter, brings us to our final point. True discipleship only occurs when Jesus is first. Above all, before all, and for all time, forever. The issue that we just looked at isn't with these things. Ever. It's with the fact that they're placed first. Right? We see this especially in the conversation of the second and third men, right? you see their language? Look at verse, four, uh, verse 59. The guy says, Lord, let me what? Say it with me. Let me first go bury my father. Verse 61. Here we go again. Let me what? Let me first say farewell to those of my home. It's not what they want to do, but the order that is in their hearts and minds. What Jesus actually is saying, I have to come first. I must come first. And Jesus turns him down ultimately, the last guy, because he's not fit for the kingdom of God. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That Greek word, actually other times that Luke uses it, is better understood as usable or useful. And so it's no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is useful for the kingdom of God. Like if I was to plow your field, which I would not recommend, but if I was to plow your field and I put my hand to the plow and I look back, I'm not useful to you. It's going to, I'm going to ruin your plow. I'm going to ruin your field. Not useful, not profitable, not fruitful. It's not going to be helpful. And so Jesus is saying here, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is useful for the kingdom of God. And here's why. Because the more you commit your life to Christ, the more it will inevitably in some way, shape, or form cost you. And if you're always looking back, if you're always looking around at others who don't have the struggles that you do because you're a Christian, you're not going to be useful for the kingdom. You're always going to be wondering, like, is this worth it? Should I be here? Is this, I really had a good relationship with so-and-so, now I don't because they think I'm weird. Is this worth it? Should I really be giving up this much of of my life? Should I be giving up this much of my money? I'm in the most expensive season of life right now with kids and here, and I don't know if I should be doing this, and maybe I should do this later. Maybe I should follow Christ later. Hey, Lord, first let me get my kids through college. Hey, Lord, first let my parents die because they would be really upset if I really committed myself. To you. Hey, Lord, first let me kind of distance myself from these relationships. Then I'll get baptized because there's certain people in my life who will think that's super weird and I want to preserve that relationship. But true disciples make make every effort to prioritize Jesus above all else so they can intently focus on the task at hand, which is making disciples who make disciples. And that doesn't happen with people who say, you know what, I'll do it a little later. I'll be fully committed a little later. Later, But first, I need to do this. I'll really commit to fill in the blank, a a certain ministry, uh, my local church, my community group, as soon as I get my kid through this stage in their life, I'll really commit at that time. I would be closer to Jesus and more committed to Jesus, but my kid, I mean, my kid's gifted, like in X sport, like got to be gifted. And so they got to go to the clinics. Which I never understood, because I thought if you're gifted, you didn't need the clinic. But I don't know. I'm clearly not an athlete. So it's anyway, that's just... But I, I, I'll, I'll get there when I can get there. But right now, God has something else for me. First, let me get my kid into this. First, let me get my career to this certain level. First, let me make sure that my home is at this certain level. First, let me make sure that I have the, the, the security of the money that God has provided for me. And here he's saying, uh, Jesus is saying, I, I can't be in your top ten. Like, I have to be number one. Jesus sees two options. First, not first. Not well, so close. Second, mm, oh, wow, it's not even a distant second. First, not first. Not, but, but top three, I got you right up in there, bro. Like, you're really, I put you above a lot of things. And Jesus is saying, I must be first. Disciple making is hard Work. Growing in Christ is hard work. If I'm not first, it's going to be so easy to be distracted from the tasks at hand. I must be first or you're not my disciple. I must be your priority over money, over your family, over your career, over your parents, over your loved ones. You don't have to kick them to the side, but I must be first. It's as if Jesus was like, do you know the kind of savior I am? I'm not the kind of guy who like just appears to win. People don't follow me and people of the world's looking at are like, wow, that person's really got it going on. I'm not the kind of savior who appears to win, guys. I don't rally people, I don't get constituencies, I don't pull together nations and armies and triumph. I save people by being arrested. I save people by being condemned. Jesus knew that the same people who are going to throw palm branches down to welcome him into Jerusalem were the same people that will later scream, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be on our head. We don't care. Crucify him. I save people by being condemned. I save people by dying. Jesus like, following me isn't going to change this life in a way that makes it more attractive to be a disciple. That's why Jesus must be first. If anything comes above your devotion to Jesus, it's going to always be more attractive. It will always be easier. It will always win. If it's this thing versus Jesus, this thing versus pleasing God, this thing is probably easier probably the lower hanging fruit, probably takes less of you, probably takes less sacrifice from my life or your life. And if Jesus isn't firmly in first, he's going to be knocked out. He's going to be set aside. There's first, and there's not second and third. There's first or there's not first. I want to say something to you that's Kind of hard to say. It's a a bold statement. You're like, oh, that's starting now? I thought, okay. Just getting warmed up. I want to speak to you in this way because I want it to be clear from the Word of God, and I'm praying that God will use it in each of our lives individually. Individually, I preach to a crowd. God preaches to you. So when you hear a sermon, you're like, I feel like he was talking to me. I wasn't. He was. If you're thinking, I really want to put Jesus first, I can't wait to do that someday. If you're thinking, I, I believe in Jesus. I be, no question, I believe in Jesus, but I can't put him first right now. I have my career. I'm going to put myself in a position so that I can put him first even better later. Or I want to have some fun. Or I want to wait until my parents die because they'll be very unhappy. Or I want to wait until I can get myself settled in my job. Or I want to wait till I can get my kids through this certain season of life. Or I want to wait till they're settled. I believe in Jesus. If you're, if you're thinking, I'd like to put Jesus first and I'll do that someday, what Jesus is saying is, you don't get it. Because if you got it, you wouldn't be able to put it off. Let the dead bury their dead. It takes deadness to put anyone or anything before Christ. Let them take care of it. This isn't like some sliding scale where it's like, are you a disciplined person? I'm disciplined, but not as disciplined as I should be and not as disciplined as that guy. I'm kind of type A, but not as type A as so-and-so and no one's as type A as Brad Bigney. I, I eat healthy, but not as much as I could, but I can do a little bit. I'm a pretty hard worker, but it, when it comes to be things that, that I don't really like to do, I can be lazy at times. Like It's not like a, are you a hard worker-ish? I kind of am. I can be, I'm neat, but I'm not, there's certain areas of my life that are disorganized. This is not like, I'm. it's Jesus first, uh-ish, ish. In some ways he is, in some ways he's not. You say, I get it. I get it. That's why I can't wait to do it. And I'm looking back at you and saying, if you got it, you would not be able to delay doing it. If you got it, you would not have it within you to be able to put off dedicating your life to Christ. First and foremost, I'm not talking about... And for some of you, that might be you're lost and you're like, I'm, I need to love Jesus and believe that he died for my sins. That's great. But, and, 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 and if that's how the Lord uses this word in your life, if the gospel goes forward in a mighty way, oh, I couldn't be happier. But for those of us who have already committed our lives to Christ, we're not new Christians. If we get it, nothing will be able to come before him. And the way that he has impacted our lives is that everything we do will be done through a grid of, but I'm a Christian, so what would I do? But but Jesus died for me, so what do I do? So I can't be just like, surely there's got to be a difference between me as a Christian school teacher in the public school and me and the other people who are teaching science in a public school, there's got to be something different about me. What does that mean? There's got to be something different about the way that I'm going to run my money and the way other people run their money who are really just good at running money, like good at handling their money, good stewards. What's going to be different about the way that I handle my money? What's going to be different about the way that I raise my kids? Because Christian parents are not, first of all, it's not guaranteed that Christian parents are great parents. And second of all, there's many parents that are great parents and have nothing to do with Jesus. So what's going to be different about me? Because if Jesus is first, I'm not going to kick my kids to the side. But what's going to be different about my life, my parenting, my marriage, my friendships, my jobs, the way that I handle my money and my time because I'm a Christian? And I just want to say, if putting Jesus first is something you hope to get to one day, I hope it's something you get to one day as well. But please don't sit here and feel like I'm in a good spot with Jesus, even though he's so close to first right now in my life. Because I think if you really got the truth of the gospel and the importance of discipleship, you wouldn't have the option to put it off because you wouldn't resist coming to him and putting him first in your life. What about you? What is the good thing that is always like, it's a good thing, but if I just drop one, oh, it'll be a God thing. What's the good thing in your life that vies for your attention, affections, all of those things that says, just put, don't let Jesus get in the way of this. What's the good thing in your life that I'm not saying you need to ditch altogether, but you're like, this is more important to me than it should be. I need to rearrange and reprioritize the things in my life so that I show that I'm a true follower of Jesus because I value him above all else. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit, is useful for the kingdom of God, Jesus needs people who are going to make disciples now, who are going to go to the nations now, who are going to teach them all that he's taught us now. And that requires a focusing and a prioritization such that the world has neither known nor seen prior to Christ. Can Jesus count on you. And that's not him saying, I really need help. No, you know that's not how we roll. But are you one person who Jesus can count on because you put him before everything? And so he knows, he doesn't think you're perfect. He knows you're not perfect. That's why he died. Pretty aware. And then when he comes to him or something else, he's like, John's going to choose me. Claire's going to choose me. Mike is going to choose me. Donnie's going to choose me. Uh, Pam's going to choose me. That's what we've been called to. Not putting Jesus in our top three, but Jesus being first, because it really is first or not first. And so, Father, we come before you Uh, cognizant of the word that was just preached and praying that you would do what only you can do and that is apply it to our individual lives personally, powerfully in such a way so that we might know what change, what adjustment, what realigning of priorities or values in our own lives do we need to do in order to be pleasing to you. And Lord, I pray that you would even today Uh, Through your grace, through your mercy, by the power of your word and the power of the gospel, would you call people to yourself? Would you call people to your side? Call people to put you first for the first time in their entire lives. Would you save souls, we pray, for your glory, for their good? Lord, we know that today is the day of salvation. We pray that you would make people aware of that. Today is the day of their salvation salvation. You've had them hear this word for that very reason. Do it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.